I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, with a conversation about aspirational change in design and architecture. So does the idea and personal definition of success, we're going for a deep dive with an incredibly well-qualified panel. You're going to love this. Is it big? Ultralux? Or perhaps there's something more? Social issues have caused a global refocus on what home means. Safety, security, comfort have all become more often discussed topics than in years past. What defines aspirational architecture in a highly fractured post-COVID America? What does it mean? What, what do we want versus what do we think we should have? This panel includes... Paul McLean, Brian Pinkett, and Joe Dangren, all amazing architects with incredible projects. What is the value of architecture? How does one calculate the value where want intersects need? What is need now versus need in a year from now? I love this group of incredibly talented architects. If you told me in March of 2019 that you'd be stuck at home for a year, how would you live differently? The ideas espoused here are changing the nature of architecture, and in the next 55 minutes, you will understand why. Please know that this, as well as the following conversation, is absolutely packed with new ideas and traditional ideas packaged in new ways. This topic was ideated and crafted for the sole purpose of making the participants and you think about architecture differently, of showcasing breakout ideas and planting the seeds for what's next. This is part of the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol. Defining what comes next is a challenge, but it can be made far more predictable when experts check in. And as I've said in the past, architects are futurists. These are the people making the projections that become realities. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to all things podcast design and architecture. So check it out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. 
we we all and I love that Joe and Paul got to meet each other. Um, I've known you all for 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 a little bit. Um, love your work. I I think that the work you're doing is is groundbreaking. I think it's incredible. I think it's wonderful, and I absolutely love it. And that's why I wanted you here to to take part in this conversation. This conversation is part of the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. The conversation that I wanted to have today is about aspirational architecture. And it's so funny because when I first brought it up, it was kind of like, I don't, what do you mean? And here's the idea behind this. I would, we've talked about architecture is a language. I would also argue that architecture is a true, in its truest sense, an art form. And when I was with when I was with Playboy, I had the opportunity to interview jazz musicians, legendary musicians, as they came through Southern California for the Playboy Jazz Festival. And I've noticed a couple of things that are really interesting and some similarities between jazz and architecture. Not every jazz musician is good. Not all jazz is good, but you know good when you hear it. And I would argue that architecture is very much the same way. I've learned a lot of lessons in the past year and I think we all have. And, and I think part of what's come out of this is that architecture is more important now than I think it ever was before because of both form and function. And to, to sort of throw a quote out there at the start of this, Zaha Hadid, architecture is really about well-being. On the one hand, it's about shelter. I think people want to feel good in a space, but it's also about pleasure. And so this is kind of where I want to start the conversation. I, I want your take on your thoughts on architecture now after the year that we've all been through and hearing from your clients, what you're hearing from them about their needs, their desires, their wants, and, and maybe what you haven't heard prior to this year. So, you know, with that, I'm going to, Paul, I'm going to start with you because you've been traveling all over the world and you, you're already out there with both feet and you're hearing a ton of things. What do you, what do you hear now? Uh, about architecture as it as it relates to people's lives, as it relates to their happiness, to their well-being, that maybe you didn't hear a year ago. I think it's it's I've definitely really noticed a deeper dive in with clients in terms of how what they. I'm not just talking about program, but about everything. Um, probably partially from being forced to live in domestic spaces for a year and not to move around so much, but people really look at things a lot more carefully than they used to. And I'll use the simple example of a home office, right? Which everyone is really looking at home offices these days, but um, people are, they used to think about it as something like as an afterthought. Oh yeah, I need an office because I might work from home one day. Now that reality is there, it's not just a home office. It's like, you know, how are they going to interact with people? How does it interact with the rest of the house? What type of, you know, what type of view do they have? You know, how will it feel? How large is it? Will they work together as a couple? Will they not? I mean, it went from literally, I need a home office, check the box to like 20 questions on that particular issue. Wellness has become huge for people. They're, they're, 
focused on well, I mean, obviously the type of clients we have, they have resources so they can think about things beyond the basic needs of shelter, but um, wellness has become enormous. I mean, we talk about wellness every day with clients and in a much broader sense than just wellness spaces. Um, but the, the feeling of light, I've had clients talking about water, light, earth, fire, you know, uh, things that you never used to hear. Um, that there's a connection there that they're really appreciating the spaces more and what they could potentially be. So I'm very, that's very exciting. And uh, I don't know if we just got really fortunate or not, but we seem to be getting um, some more interesting clients coming out of COVID or maybe everyone is more interesting. I don't know, but um, you know, their depth, the projects are more, 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 there's, there's a depth to them that there maybe wasn't before, which are, is really exciting for us. We're, we're thrilled with the projects we have, just struggling to stay on top of it. Brian, thoughts? Sure. I mean, um, what we found is that it's the architecture is less about the architecture and it's more about the people. Yeah. And um, this idea of reflection and introspection and spirituality, it's, it's all coming out. Um, some things we're suggesting and offering, but a lot of our clients are bringing it to us. They want prayer rooms and meditation spaces. And, and this wellness concept is like at a whole nother level. Like you said, it's not just a gym and a space to put some equipment, but um, people are really thinking about how they interact with their kids and where do they interact with their kids and the different activities. And, you know, our, you know, our billion, billionaire clients can have everything. Uh, our millionaire clients can have most everything, but for the regular common people like us, you know, we have to figure out how do we make it all work? How do we, how do we do all the activities that we need to do internally and externally within the given space that we have. And as, as architects, that's always been a great challenge, right? Um, the bigger houses that we do are a lot easier. You know, when you have 20,000 square feet, you get a client with 5,000 square feet and it's like the challenge is there. The fun is there because we want to see it all happen. We want to be able to create it all for them. And so, um, I think in the last year, what's come up is people are really starting to look at themselves and what it is that they wanna do and who they wanna be and how they wanna live their lives a lot more as opposed to what was in the past was everybody look at me and look what I've got. It's not as much as what I've got, but it's more of what I can give. Joe? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that uh, both, both Paul and Brian bring up bring up great points. Um, I, I think Brian, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up, brought up family because I think that, you know, the one thing that links all of us, which I'm sure Josh is why you brought us together is that we all deal with, you know, single family end user custom homes. Right. Yeah. And, and really um, it is about conversations like, like Paul's saying, it is about, it's not just the, the square footage or, or checking the box of the program, but it really is about conversations of, of, aspirational lifestyle how do you really want to live how, how do you want to function in this space how do you want to raise your kids i think um in some ways covid at least in our line of business uh, i think the, the three of us on this call our offices are extremely busy because we've survived you know 2020 and 
people that have been stuck in their homes that they've never been faced with the the space you know the four walls around them in the same manner they're really they're having to critically think about uh, about how they want to live what's important and and Brian to your point about size of space and 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 sites and and connection between interior and exterior and in Southern California we're we're all practicing outside of Southern California but in Southern California, this ability to connect with with nature and and utilize the site in ways that you know you're not able to in in colder climates at least year round makes a 5,000 square foot home potentially feel like a 15,000 square foot home. Um, and and I'll also echo what Paul's saying in in that prior to COVID and maybe it's just also where we're at in our firm growth, but. Um, prior to COVID, we didn't have any projects outside of Southern California, and now we have projects in Oregon, Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Connecticut, because a lot of the clientele from places like LA, they want space, right? They, they, a, a half acre in, in Pacific Palisades is not enough for some of the clients anymore. They want acreage in Wyoming. They want space to not just breathe, but to run around, and so in some ways COVID I think for our firms has probably made our life a little easier in trying to convince people of the power of architecture and the influence that the architecture can have on their well-being. And, and by the way, it can also be beautiful. And I love that Baha Hadid quote. That's great. It could be pleasurable. It could be beautiful. It could be yeah. functional and beautiful. Yeah. Pleasure is a word we don't really usually associate with architecture but it is a great word to associate with architecture and it's a word that maybe has some not negative connotations but people might be hesitant about using it because it feels a little bit uh seductive perhaps or uh indulgent but i, I think it, there is pleasure in materiality and in, in space and light and water and and that it's a word we should use more and get people to see it from that perspective as opposed to numbers and sizes and you know uh, building codes, <laughs> building codes, right? Yeah, um, building codes. I, I, I appreciate that you're saying that because it's really interesting to me as, as I was, as I was thinking about this and thinking about our conversation today, you know, I, I was thinking about people call the kitchen, the heart of the home, right? It's always been that way. It's, it's interesting to apply such an, such an emotional label to a room in a house. At the same time, to use the word pleasurable with architecture seems so foreign. Yeah. And, you know, Brian, to, to your point, my first ever design house was called Small Space Big Style in the Hollywood Hills. And it was a 1400 square foot penthouse. And I, and I learned something really interesting. It was completely open and there were 10, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 designers working on this and they were all working in unison because it was a design house and they knew that it was public facing, right? And one of the things I learned and to your point, and it doesn't sound right to say, well, you can do anything with a big space and an even bigger budget, right? But it's almost, it's, it's, a, it's a simpler process because it, make thing, it makes things easier. When you have a small footprint it does make things more challenging. It does make things more difficult. And when you're confined to those small spaces, 
that provided us with something that were it not for the pandemic, we would not societally, right? We would not have had an opportunity to look back at this and say, you know what, this doesn't work, but it was okay because we always went somewhere else instead of staying here. Right. I'm curious, with those lessons learned, how does that, how does that fundamentally and functionally change the business? And Brian, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, um, what's interesting is that, um, I don't know, 15 years ago, we were doing great rooms and not having living rooms because people weren't using living rooms, right? And um, it became open, 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 everything. I mean, these guys do these amazing modern homes. I, I love your work, both of you guys, by the way. And a lot of that is because it's open and it's airy and big glass doors that open up. But I think what people are finding now is although they love that space, they also need that space where they can get away. So we're designing homes where it's open and airy and everybody's together on one side and then the other side is where it's more quiet and like I said before, reflective where you're sleeping, you're maybe your offices and stuff like that where you're not all in it with the whole family all the time. And with these Zoom calls that you have to have, you need quiet. And when the husband has a Zoom call and the wife has a Zoom call and you're sharing one office, it becomes a challenge, right? Kids are on Zoom calls for the school. So everyone's starting to rethink how they live. You know, um, we used to design uh, the kids' study rooms where three or four kids would study in the same room. They're being redesigned right now because it doesn't work. You know, so um, I think more than ever, I think the aspect of how people are living is being answered by the people more now than before. We used to ask the questions, how do you live? How do you entertain? But now they're coming to us and saying, we now know how we live. We now know how we entertain or how we are going to want to entertain, you know, in the future. And so um, that's been really, uh, really helpful and interesting to hear from them, you know, what's coming up for them. I'm, I'm, cu I'm, <laughs> I'm curious for, for Paul and, and Joseph, you know, when I, when I think about like Frank Lloyd Wright, for example, beautiful spaces, rigid and inflexible, right, are two words that definitely come to mind. And, you know, you, you wonder what, what the functionality would be like over the past year in a Frank Lloyd Wright home, right? Or <laughs> at, at the same time, you're all laughing, it's true, you, right? At right. The same, at this, it, it, I, I imagine it would not be an enjoyable experience. At the same time, you have a Richard Neutra home, you know, take the, the VDL house, for, for example, in Silver Lake. And, you know, when touring it, you look at Dione's room and it's small. It's really, really small. But the bed moves out to make things easier. It was thought through. You look outside. It doesn't look small because of the wall of glass and because of the water outside. It takes the eye and it opens up, even though physically it's a small space. The kitchen is tiny. There's a, a little elevator in there for who knows what reason, but the built-ins and a room that you can see the living space, but you living room, but you can't get in there. But at the same time, you don't feel cut off. 
it, it feels, and I think that's kind of the point that I'm looking for is it feels different. And when you talk about open spaces and you talk about combining that with different uses, you know, you talk about your clients who are moving to Wyoming, they're going to be using these spaces functionally the same way that they have over the past year. So they have to, they have to work. Your, your thoughts on how, how that has, has, how those attitudes have or will change the design. Joe, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah, I'll go first, Paul. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that, 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 well, a few things on 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 scale and I think intimacy, which is both Neutra and, and Brian, to your point, you know, I, I think there are still clients that come to us and want that great room, right? But in addition to the great room, we find that there's a lot of conversations being had around what's, you know, what used to be like in Neutra's day, the den, right? Or the the fan that evolved into the family room, but the den with a beautiful in Neutra's case, and I love that it's his birthday today. I didn't know that, Josh. So, um, you know, the VDL house, for example, his living the living room would be about the size of a of a den, a very intimate den, right? The ceiling height at less than eight feet. So scale is a big part of what we're talking about. Scale leads scale of the physical space and the constraints of the room lead to intimacy and make people feel, again, humans and humans encompass and, and ultimately use our spaces. And so um, scale is so critical. The, the, one of the things about Neutra and the VDL house, and, and I think we look to Neutra a lot and are heavily influenced by the way that, that he designed floor plans, um, you know, axial relationships, vistas. Um, it, the VDL house is a great example because you look all the way across the reservoir. And so the living room isn't, uh, you know, you don't have trees that are on the property line. You have, uh, you know, a mile and a half away across the Silver Lake Reservoir. And so that room, although the physical space is intimate and makes you feel cozy or can make you feel cozy, you have that experience of, of the visual. Same thing with the, uh, with the kitchen. Um, you know, you see across the courtyard, you see to, um, you know, to the, to the North as well. And so you get a sneak peek to the dining room and down the hallway. And so I think you can do a lot with, with views and vistas that are outside of the footprint of the building um, that we, we try to utilize that in our floor plans all the time to try to maximize views, whether that's in Wyoming or in Culver city. And, and Paul, Paul knows about a few, few properties with views. <laughs> you know, but, I want to tell a little story. Um, before Joe was born, I worked for him in uh, Sydney, Australia. It was Dennis Rourke. He lived in a house, and it comes back to me about scale. And, and so it was a very modest house, but he designed it himself. Um, but if you, you guys can all imagine, it's like four brick bays, all in white brick, two stories, so eight windows, right? But downstairs, three of the windows were the living space and there was a sliding wall of absolute minimalist glass that disappeared behind and one was a kitchen and right of the kitchen was this little courtyard space the whole house kind of been more than like 1200 square feet but spectacularly located on a cliff on sydney harbor and i get to stay there sometimes and you'd wake up in the morning and the sun would be coming in and the whole room was no more than 10 feet wide but the whole wall was glass and this brick arch and everything opened and it was just beautiful and 
it was such an inspiration to me. And it comes right back to what you were saying, Joe, about borrowing space and borrowing light and borrowing view, you know, that how you don't need much, you, you know, you can do this very well with a small footprint, but you just has to, you have to make, take advantage of what's around you. And we, we sometimes call it like spatial editing, you know, where there's always things you don't want to see, but we'll use planting and water and parts of the building to screen those as we all know we all very good at doing that but people don't realize that you can turn that to your advantage and, and borrow that view as much as possible i also think that you going back to your original point by frank Lloyd right i mean i i don't believe in the concept of the architecture driving you know the plan it's like the the program drives the plan and the house has to be practical and people have to be able to enjoy living there and it just shouldn't be screaming at them look i'm great architecture you know it's supposed to not you're not supposed to notice it in the best of terms right you notice your family members and they're not annoying you because you made two public spaces so you could have your zoom call over here and you would see the view you know and everything opens to outdoors because it's southern california I mean, that's what it's not all about i think it's a failure if it's all about like that vision like the peter eisman type thing where everything is like you can write a five page critique of, of a house but you can't figure out how to use it you know sorry <laughs> oh man that's awesome <laughs> I'm right there with you. No, I totally get it. I, I think too, it's interesting how you how you talk about the program, but there's also the personality. Mm -hmm. And how the personality sort of drives the program as well. And it's your personality as you're as you're drawing out of, of your clients' needs, wishes, and desires. And you know, you go back to the Frank Lloyd Wright example. Um, he you know. I didn't meet him, but I could pretty much tell you a few things about his personality. I've, I've seen enough shows with him. I've read enough interviews. He didn't really care. He didn't yeah. really care. And, and it, was, it was exclusively about the work. There's a lot there. At the same time, you know, what you're talking about is so interesting because you're exploring the ideas behind the Pleasure Center. And, and to back up a second and to sort of refocus this, um, I, I have often said, and I believe this to be true, that designers and architects are futurists because you have to be. Just like in jazz, you know, the good ones, the good ones are. And I think what's so interesting is that as futurists, you know, designers are looking at a 10 to 15 year window span of use. You're looking at a 50 to 100 year span of use as far as the structures that, that, you're, that you're designing. And it's really hard to try to predict what life is gonna be like in 50 or 100 years from, the, from you know, when you're sitting at a drafting table or you're sitting at your computer trying to imagine a structure. And that being said, you know, I go back to, and I think we've all talked about this at one time or another, the, the, the pandemic a hundred years ago and all of the architectural changes and all of the design changes that emerged out of the Spanish flu and that pandemic. I mean, there are things in play today, subway tiles, you know, for example, that, you know, that's what brought that on. It's a small thing, but it's, 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 it's become such a big thing for design. And, you know, you had mentioned um, the idea of prayer rooms. And I mean, look, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about prayer rooms in a home or, you know, in the eighties, the big thing was, you know, you want to, you want a place to put your tanning bed. Right. But now <laughs> it's, 
it's become so much, it's more, I don't want to say it's gotten so serious, but I think it's gotten refocused. Is, is that, is that maybe the, the way to look at it? Brian thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. Um, uh, what did you just said there a minute ago about, we're thinking about tanning beds in the eighties. Uh, <laughs> That was distracting that point. I, I lost you at tanning beds. <laughs> what I was going to say, because, um, you know, uh, what we're trying to do now as architects is, um, is really go beyond just listening to our clients, right? And because we've been doing that for years, right? Trying to give them, and every project that we do, we design, we see our clients in it, right? Even though we're as architects, we want to have our our, our so-called signature, whatever that is, uh, infused in the project. Now it's about um, taking it to the next level, and sometimes the clients don't really know what that is or what that means. We have clients who come to us and say that, um, you know, we we're not really sure what we want, but it's kind of like this. And as architects, we're, we're taking that little bit of information and we're expanding upon it 10 and 20 times beyond their expectations. So at the end, you know you have a great project when the client comes in and says, this is more than what I even expected. And a lot of that has to do with, the success of that has to do with the emotions that they feel when they're in that space. It's not about what we did or what it looks like. It's how they feel. And uh, being able to, to connect with our clients at that level is really what makes it a successful project. You know, and um, unfortunately, a lot of the, um, you know, the, the billionaire clients, they have people who are between them and the architect. And it yeah. really takes away from the success of the project. Whereas we have some clients who are right there involved with us, roll up their sleeves. And not only is it more fun, but I believe it's, it, it creates really uh, much more intimate and personal uh, results. Joe? Yeah, a lot, a lot of thoughts. I think that, um, you know, I'm taking some notes here because I think there's a lot of great points, you know, being, being thrown out there. I think in, in terms of being futurist, I, I really like, in your in your email lead up to the discussion I, I really like that description i think that you know that maybe the biggest compliment that brett and myself and and our team could probably get regarding our work would be if someone describes it as timeless because i think that there's maybe two two things that lead to you know a, a building still being in existence in 50 or even 100 years it's that it's that it's not it's not of the time um, that we're working right now, it, it has a timeless quality and it's been designed and, and executed and built with a level of, of care and intention that someone in 50, 100 years is going to want to restore it. I mean, we, we have a line of our practice where we, we renovate, we restore, you know, historically significant homes in, in the LA region and hopefully beyond as our firm grows. But we're really passionate about that. We feel like it's, it's a part of the, the duty that we have as an architect in this kind of, you know, this club or this, um, 
this, uh, I don't know if uh, fraternity is the right word, but, um, you know, we would love to be able to help restore just because of uh, Neutra's birthday, right? I've worked on some of his, his homes in the past, but um, not under my, my firm, but um, we'd love that opportunity because we also feel like it's our responsibility. But, um, you know, to, to Brian's point, I think that communication with the client is everything. Access to the client is everything. Um, I think that all of us would, would agree that the closer that we can get to understanding our client's expectations and then ultimately meeting those expectations in the, in the building is the goal, right? We are, first and foremost, we, we all run businesses on this call and, and we're a service-based industry. So we're, we're trying to give our clients something that they, that they ultimately compensate us for. And, and whether that's, I think the other interesting point, Josh, is whether that's considered art or it's, it's considered really a, a product. I, I think that's the kind of subjective nature that's really, it's really, really interesting. And I think that's a whole other panel in itself, right? Was, was Frank Lloyd Wright an artist or an architect? Was Neutra an artist or an architect? I, w- I would think that not to say that Frank Lloyd Wright isn't an architect because he was, but I would consider him more of an artist than necessarily maybe Neutra was, right? I think Neutra was more of an architect, you know, something like over 500 buildings in his, in his uh, lifespan. And, and Frank Lloyd Wright was very, this is how it's going to be, right? Um, but that's how you get falling water, which is an, the masterpiece of art. Is it a masterpiece of, of architecture from the functional standpoint? That's a that's as subjective as the art discussion. So it's all it's really, I mean, we could talk about that. I'm sure all of us for for a very long time. Well, that's you know what's interesting. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> as as you're talking, here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking about. Right. So you're talking about as architect as artist, and I think you know I want to I, I I rarely do this, but I want to ask the question, let you think about it while I give you some context. Are you artists or are you not? Um, and I asked the question to put it in context. Uh, so back to jazz, right? I, I love jazz. Um, absolutely love jazz. I am a, I'm a huge Miles Davis fan. Love Miles Davis. Miles Davis is a musician, was a musician, but he was also an artist. When Bitches Brew came out, it freaked me out and I hated it. I still hate it, but I still love him. And, you know, someone who was cantankerous and inflexible and, you know, the the personality, big personality, that particular piece of music, I didn't particularly care for. And Paul, kind of to your, to your point, you know, you talk about the critique of it, right? While I didn't like that particular piece, while I didn't like that collection, what emerged from that because of that groundbreaking work changed the structure of the business. Joe, to your point about it being a business as well. And I would argue at the same time that the work that the three of you are doing and, and within your firm as a whole, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. So with that, now that I've set it up and I've let you actually give it, give it some thought and Paul, I'll start with you. <laughs> you know, are you, are you an artist as well as an architect? Is the work art? And if so, 
you know, that then speaks to a whole different part of the human personality. I think what's interesting about architecture versus the, the traditional definition of art is that it's a collaborative process, perhaps. And generally, when we think of art, we think of ownership, like in terms of the person, a single person creating something. And that's why I think, Joe, you think of Frank Lloyd Wright, because he was such a personality, like a force of personality that, you know, went out there and drew things. But, you know, in a way, he's kind of like a Damien Hirst, you know, where he has the ideas and then he had a factory that helped him produce those ideas, you know, but he was still perceived as the artist. But I don't think it's, I think you, it's, it's not really a fair thing because, you know, it is a collaborative process. There's an artistry to it, um, but there is, it's not, it's not like I design a house, um, you know, or Joe or Brian, it's like a, a thousand people designed this house, literally. And, and we all work together and we're the guys locally that get to maybe hold that idea in our heads and then try and get everyone to communicate and to understand that idea and then pull it, push it into existence. But it's very much a collaborative process, which is why I think people struggle with, is it art or architecture? I think it's communal art, essentially, you know, that a lot of people contribute to and that sense of ownership is, is important too, because all those people have ownership. In fact, I have one particular client and he, he was very gracious at letting us show people his house. And he, he likes to take over the tour and, you know, he'll show them around the house. And at the end of it, he's like, he looks at me and usually says, what exactly did you do in this process? You know, because I think these are all my ideas. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, where is that boundary? It's a communal act of artistry, I think. And I think that's something that should be celebrated, that art is part of human nature. And it's, it is generally, you know, we, we think of artists and we think of, you know, Michelangelo sculpting away by himself there or, you know, Picasso in his studio. Um, but that's only one type of art. And this is a whole different type of art. And if anything, this is more important art because, you know, so many people get to use it and enjoy it, but also so many people get to collaborate in it. It's more a reflection of humanity that way, I think. And I think that's what makes it so much fun. Because yeah. it's not just one person's idea. It's a lot of people involved in creating yeah. all the way down to the electrician who's got ideas about new products that they want to introduce to this project. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great, great point, Paul. But I think um, back to is it art or architecture? I think um, the word art is in architecture. Sure. Uh, the Therapist isn't in there, but we are. We found to be a therapist. Um, but yeah, that that uh, the notion that we're creating something bigger than any one of us together, that is not only for uh, visual pleasure, but actual to be used, occupied, experienced. That's what makes it so much more um, exciting for me personally, yeah. than just art. I mean, I went to school and studied art. And um, I think, uh, and for some people like Josh, maybe jazz music uh, takes him to another place uh, versus the visual arts, right? Uh, but as an architect, you actually get to design and create places and spaces for people to have different emotions, different 
feelings, different experiences, which is, it's, it's amazing because um, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of opportunity, right, Brian? I think going back to, going back to family, I think that one of the most, one of the most amazing things that I've been personally able to experience is that we, you know, my wife and I just, just welcomed our, our second son into the world and and our our first son who's two and a half he's year he's lived every you know every, he spent every night almost of his life in a home that my wife and I got to design together and and that that is an amazing thing it just just I think it's a personal thing right now but the fact that that the structures that we all design and 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 have this huge collaboration with with our teams and, and the builders and um, we influence human behavior. Like that's a heavy, that's a heavy thing, right? And, and to Brian's point earlier, we, we always had a professor, we had a professor in school that, that said, you can, you, you definitely have the power to influence behavior and, and generate or trying to create emotion or, re, or cause a reaction. You don't know what that reaction is gonna be Right, but you know that you have the ability to to generate that reaction. So there's a lot of power in what we do. I, I think that going back to the the art versus you know is architecture and art. I think that Paul, it's a really I, I think Paul and Brian really great points that you know artists like like Michelangelo they had these studios right where they would where they would go and they'd do a few hammer, you know, a few chisels here, and then they'd have the team do work the overnight shift. And they, you know, they, they have this kind of, that was their mass production. And um, the fact that we can, as a team, create something that then humans can inhabit and, and at least in homes, have some of the most intimate experiences of their lives in spaces that we've had a hand in creating, um, a really powerful thing and and so I, I don't it's a really difficult question I don't think it's I don't think it's binary right it's not yes or no um I I think speaking personally I don't consider myself an artist um maybe it's because the artists that I look up to and that I admire you know people like like Leonardo or Michelangelo or Rothko or Pollock or any of these you know, or, or any of these amazing sculptors, Rodin, I, I just, it's, they're up there so high that how could I even consider, you know, what we do as an art? I think there's artistry. I think that we, we are definitely sculptors in some way. Um, but I think that, I think that architecture is maybe in some ways much, much more than art. And I think it has, it, it, it can, affect people um on on levels that maybe art can't even though art can really emotionally affect people and people can have a response to it um we we get to physically influence people's behavior and and, and hopefully in a positive way impact their their day-to-day -day life it's it's interesting to me I, and i i love i love the perspective that i'm getting here and i, and I think sometimes it's easy to take oneself out of the equation and kind of get lost in the moment a little bit. Um, when, when you say, you know, Paul, you were talking about criticism and critique. And um, I, I remember vividly the last architecture 
critique I read. I don't remember whose it was, but I can remember what it was. And it was the last one I read. It was when The Broad first came out and it was described as a cheese grater. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I don't need that. I, I realized yeah. something. That was a long time ago. And I realized that I don't, I don't need that because if I love it, why should I care what you think? You know? There is a good point there. And I do remember, you know, going to architecture school and there was so much uh, emphasis put on descriptive narrative and critiques in general and having a concept, a, like a verbal concept to describe a building. And sometimes you'd be looking at things and people would be describing something that was just fundamentally ugly, but they had this great idea that, you know, it was all about something that happened 5,000 years ago on that spot, you know, and they were resurrecting it, right? And then I always felt like you should be able to, but you couldn't, you couldn't just stand up there and say, well, I drew it like this because I thought that was beautiful, right? You'd be laughed out of school for it, you know? And I think that, you know, often, but like, there's such a problem in the architectural perspective where there's a bit of, you know, when people just do things and they do things because they're beautiful or, you know, for a certain price point, a client, they tend to look down on that a little bit, you know, when really, you know, it's, uh, well, there's, that's such a statement to unpack in so many ways, but, you know, let's go back to the beginning. Like nobody was building buildings that we remember for peasants back 5,000 years ago, right? You know, so your clients have to have money. Let's start with that. So don't give us grief about billionaires and millionaires because that's really where, you know, you need to have money to be able to do this. And that's just unfortunately the sad fact of reality. So just because you have a bunch of billionaire clients doesn't make you a bad architect, right? Which is what some people's opinion is. And, um, but I do think that there's not enough emphasis put on beauty, which is in terms of proportion and light. I mean, I grew up in Ireland, right? And, you know, most Irish architects who live there or in England, they all live in Georgian houses that are 200 years old. And people are like, why did they do that? And there's, there's obviously a location factor, but it's the beautiful light and the beautiful spaces that they created back then. They're just as pleasant and beautiful today as they were 200 years ago. And, and, uh, you know, you look at some of the stuff we did post-war in Dublin and so on, you know, which wasn't even bombed, which is a really sad part. We might as well have bombed it, what we did after the war. Um, but people build these cheap, crappy buildings in a modern style, and they were just awful. You know, they had no sense of proportion, no sense of materiality, and people hated them. And people wondered why they never looked after them. Like, you know, they took them out of, you know, Georgian tenements with great light and great height and stuck them into these horrendous tower blocks and wondered why there was no sense of community and why people put graffiti on them, you know? So it's that basic fundamental about light proportion and air and all those things that you can do with, which don't necessarily involve huge amounts of money, but you know, they're, they're just the basics of architecture that people sometimes get wrong. It's funny, those, the era that you're talking about in the style um, here in the States, we call those the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> the decade when taste took a long holiday <laughs> taste and craftsmanship <laughs> took a holiday and where they went maybe they went to china or something i don't know <laughs> um to back up a minute in listening to all three of you talk about this i, I i'm reminded of something that i i think is is really interesting and i want your i want your take on this because this is exactly what we're talking about and you talk about um so Wallace Neff and his bubble house, right? 
So you've got you've got the the house he died in, which is certainly not Spanish revival or any of the things that he's that he got to be famous for. Yet at the yeah. same time, he had this grand vision of providing peasant houses, you know, in essence, providing homes that all these servicemen, all these GIs could actually buy and afford. And I think that it it was a disservice to him that he built this in Pasadena, which which clearly, you know, dwarfed it um, by what was around it, but also he got laughed at, you know, it was, it was, it hurt his reputation. Yet now, how many decades later, we have this boom of ADUs. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's one of the things that's the it's the development and the growth. And and Joe, I'm just curious, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of coming back to you and I'm I'm wondering if that's the difference between artistry and craftsmanship. It's interesting because I I artistry artistry and craftsmanship because some of the some of the artists that I respond to have amazing craftsmanship, right? Like they are, or maybe that's just what I'm drawn to as, as someone in the field of constructing things, right? Or, or getting things, getting things ultimately built. Um, you know, Richard Serra is, 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 you know, he's a, he's a fabricator, right? He's, he's a fabricator that people subjectively consider his, his work to be beautiful or they respond to. Um, I, I love Wallace Neff. I've, I've, I mean, talk about talk about what an honor it would be to to be able to restore one of his structures. Um, and you know, I'm I'm not as familiar with with the I, I know I from his books. I know the the structures that you're referring to. I've I've never I've, I've, I don't have an in depth knowledge of them. But in some ways, even if you take the intention outside of them, you you might I think one could argue that those are those are more artistic than his than the homes that he's you know, most famous for, right? And and I believe those were done later in his career, right? The the bubble house? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's you know, you don't go to you don't come go from the, the Gillette ranch to the to right. the bubble house um and and compare the two. Uh but But I mean I mean at that point he's 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 obviously gone through his career. He's a confident cool confident in what he's he's achieved and he's able and he's able to take some risks right whereas maybe yeah. someone like frank lord wright took risks from the beginning and said you know the hell with what other people think i'm going to dictate what my structures look like um but i, I mean it, it's interesting because wallace neff was so revolutionary from the very beginning in his detailing and his minimalist approach to to the style that was being practiced at the time right um you could you look back at some of his work now and they're still minimal, right? You try to you we try to pull off some of that amount of minimalism right now in Southern California and people wouldn't buy it, which means that he was he was selling it with everything that he had and really convincing people to buy into to what he was thinking. Um, the last thing I wanna go I wanna go to is uh, because it was mentioned this collaborative nature of great architecture and design. And it's it's interesting because while I, I completely appreciate the foisting of praise, you know, you accept all the blame personally, but you you put all the praise on on everybody else. And and that's a that's a quality trait. It is. 
And because it is, it is your firm, it is, it is, you know, automatically assumed that, you know, these, these wonderful ideas are individual and not as a, as a group. Um, and, and I want to sort of lead into this one with Brian, because I know how, how Landry design group works. You know, you guys are, you, you put everybody on, on the book jacket, on the dust cover. I mean, you put everybody in the book. It is a, it is a group effort. And I'm, I'm curious because of that, does that enable you to get a, a broader perspective of what, what true desires are based on the time, based on the timing, based on society. And I, and I, I dig a little deeper in that insofar as to say the last year has been so traumatic for all of us, everybody, for so many different reasons, right? We've had so much strife and so much conflict and home is, is where the heart is. Home is where the head is. Home is where the family is. Home is where you find peace, tranquility, wellness, and you, it's, it's restorative, right? And I'm curious, the idea that a broader, a broader group, a more diverse group leads to broader, diverse, and maybe more relevant ideas. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of great things that come out of the we, you know? And um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of the biggest challenges, because we work so collaboratively together as a group, when the uh, pandemic hit and everyone was working from home, it was, okay, how do we keep the, the culture of our firm intact when we're no longer together, right? And um, we were able to do it. We were able to create the systems in place, use the computer, um, different programs to stay connected. Um, we had more team meetings, more group meetings. In fact, all the, the teams met daily, okay? Even if it was for 15 to 20 minutes, we are going to stay connected so that one, we're looking out for each other during this terrible time and two that we we keep our spirits up and our energy and our creativity and and maybe be distracted from what's going on outside of our walls and and dive into what we love so yeah the the creativity level went up the um connection was even higher um and um people you would normally just see by the water cooler, now you're seeing them on your screen in your home more often. Uh, some of the teams would, uh, would be working with an open chat line so that they could just stay connected, even you know, talking while they're working and asking each other, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, so yeah, in thinking about how we're going to come back into the office in the future here, uh, I think things are going to be a lot different. I think we're going to, we're going to be working at a much higher level. Uh, in fact, Richard and I, um, we're working in this program where we can sketch on our iPads, just like we're sketching on paper and send the information out to our teams. And it's, it's unbelievable. It has, you know, trace and it just like you're at a desk. In fact, it's better because I don't need a big sheet of paper. I have a little iPad. I could be 
sitting in my car being driven or the doctor's appointment, marking it up. And it just makes you feel so much more um, creative and useful because when an idea comes, you can jump right on it and share. Um, and even with our clients, we had one client uh, we were on the call with and we were marking up on the screen and even the client was like, I need to get that program so I can do that too, right? So there's, um, there's been some great things that have come out of this. Um, and hopefully we can parlay that into when we get back together and, and really um, and flourish from it. Paul, thoughts? Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely been very interesting times that way. Uh, I feel like we, we're, we're hopefully going back soon. We, we stayed out longer than we thought we would. Um, but I, I think I agree with everything Brian says, but there's still something missing, right, Brian? It's like we, we still find that just the being in the room with someone, like huddling together without masks at someone's desk, you know, and kind of ha half finishing each other's drawing, you know, that bit is, you know, that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to getting back to. Plus, um, one thing, what you know, we've been dealing with, I think our office is not as big as yours. It's like 10 people. But, uh, you know, I found there's more negativity. And um, it's not the negativity as such as that when we're together as a group, there's a lot more casual positiveness, perhaps, you know, where you go over some lean over someone says, no, that's really pretty. You know, what happens now is that, a lot of times, because everyone's so busy, all the positive stuff just flows, you know, like the drawings that are working out fine go out to the client, everyone's happy, but there's none of that after, you know, turning around and saying, wow, great job, you have to try and make an effort, but the negativity flows much faster back, like, no, that's wrong, change this, do that, and that seems to be bringing people down, and I, but I think that's probably a problem for everybody in every profession, you know, the, that, yeah, but to, to that point, that, that's what I'm saying. That's what's making us better because yeah, we, are, right. we are aware of the fact that we need to encourage people. We need to excite them. We need to give them the yeah. when it's due and, and also the tools. And, and I'm happy to share with you guys the tools so that you can finish someone's drawing while you're drawing <laughs> it. It's amazing yeah. what you can do. Yeah. This technology, once you get away from, I'm stuck to this drafting board and this paper, and I can have an iPad with a pen, and it, it, it's gonna change your world. I mean, I love seeing people, I love connecting with people, but I also see the value. Now I can be anywhere in the world and still be feel just as connected to the people that are on our team as I am right here in LA because we're not in the same building. So I think there's a beauty in that. But yes, obviously being together is amazing. Yeah, Joe, that, it, I was just gonna say, Joe, because you're in a smaller yeah. firm, I was curious if your experience yeah. was the same. Well, I was just gonna say smaller yet, yet through, through this, we've actually grown pretty dramatically and by our standards, maybe quicker than we expected, but um, we've, you know, Q2 and Q3 of, of 2020 were, were slow. Uh, they were slow. And I think every firm, you know, went into survival mode and, and, you know, Brett and I started, started the firm in, you know, in the great recession, coming out of the great recession. We said, you know what, we're good. We, um, we just went through it. It's the worst thing that's happened to the generation of our parents, you know, hopefully, you know, 
our kids, maybe you'll see something like this 10 years later, we're, we're in it and we're in it. And so from the very beginning, we, we kind of hunkered down and, and, um, you know, I'll never forget the day that we went home and sent everyone home. And, and it, it's a, I think it's something that'll be burned into all of our minds because ultimately, you know, yes, you, you're right. The buck stops with us, our names on the door, but, um, you know, ultimately we're, we're leaders and especially with, you know, we have a younger team and with the younger team members, um, I think that's the biggest thing that, that this kind of gap of, let's call it this gap of 2020, um, I think that our most junior team members have suffered the most because we do put such an emphasis on mentorship in our, in our studio. We really try to, to make sure that everyone knows that they have a mentor, um, that they can, you know, anyone in the studio can give them support at any point in time. And we, we make sure that they know that, that at some point in the future, they will be a, a, a mentor to someone. And, and so I think our most junior team members have suffered the most. Um, we just opened the office two weeks ago um, after kind of opening up the, the decision to the studio. And, and we, we kind of did a blind survey and people wanted to come back fully masked and with, you know, with protections, because I think they were missing that, um, that collaborate, that collaboration, that human interaction. A lot of our team members, you know, are young, they don't, they're, they don't have significant on the others, maybe they don't have roommates. And so they've really been isolated for a year. Um, and so uh, the, the energy's back, it's, it's really great. Um, our, our team is growing and, and the, the, the work, but the work is there and, and kind of to your point, Paul, we're trying to focus on the positive, you know, um, we're as busy as we've ever been. And, and, and so it's great. And so also to Brian, to your point, um, being home, communication is everything, right? It, it, it is, whether it's a professional relationship, a personal relationship, our, our Brett and our, and my relationship, the clients, I think you have to just, you have to over communicate, right? There's no such thing as, as too much communication. And, and so I think now that we're back in the studio, that, that collaboration, that communication is flowing. And, and um, I, I think our team is really our superpower, the, the kind of positivity of our team and, and the passion by which we approach every, every project in the office. Our clients can feel that our potential clients can feel that everyone in the studio feels like feels that. And, and, with our team size being, you know, about 15 people, which we are, that firm culture has always just been something really, really critical to us. And so um, I'm really proud of how the whole team handled 2020. Um, we didn't lose anyone for a number of reasons, which is, which is great. And we're kind of back and at it. So it's, it's a really positive time right now, for sure. I, I love to hear that. And with that, you know, I, I started with a quote, I'll end with one too, Corbusier, uh, a house is a machine for living in. And I, I, I like it for two reasons. It's, it's very simple and it makes sense. At the same time, it doesn't take into account any of the things that actually make a home a home, <laughs> <laughs> which I think speaks volumes, right? Yes. And, and with that, um, I really want to thank you guys. And, and I, I want to thank you all for participating. <clears throat> and I, I also want to thank you for, for your trust in me, because when I approached you guys with this idea of a conversation about, quote unquote, aspirational architecture, you know, some people 
would say, what, what, what's that? What are you talking about? Where are we going with this? Um, I, I appreciate your trust and faith in me um, with the idea because the conversation that we just had over the past hour, I, I think was really remarkable. I think it speaks to exactly what makes you all world-class designers. And um, I'm just, I'm appreciative for you and I'm appreciative for the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, fellas. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Joe, Paul, and Brian. Thank you for your time, talent, vision, and skill. It's always a joy speaking with you. Thank you, Walker Zanger and Thermosol, for your partnership. And thank you for listening and subscribing to the podcast. Keep those emails coming. Design at outlook.com. Adding the word pleasure to our architectural aspirations will make life better for all who choose to embrace this idea. See if you can add this word to what you do every day and see what happens. I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person at a design event near you very soon. Until then, be well and try to remember, take today first. (laughs) 